We are in our book series on First Peter, um, and we're getting towards the end of this book. We got a few more weeks in it. Uh, it's been we've been looking at Peter's encouragement to the saints, which are those people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who believed in Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is writing to that first generation of people. A lot of these people maybe weren't disciples or followers of Christ, but they, Jesus, but they saw Jesus, they knew about Jesus, and now Peter is writing to them. And, and a big part of this is how they are saints in the eyes of God once they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, once they've chosen to walk in the way, and that they are family. So they're saints, they're family. It's more than just, okay, God and his creation. God desires just this intimate relationship with you. And so Peter's writing to these saints, these brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's saying, hey, there's going to be suffering. And we've spent the first few weeks, as we've been looking at this book, looking at a lot of different things about suffering and how life is going to be tough. And and today, uh, we're going to be looking at a little bit more of that. But we're going to be looking at the example of Jesus Christ. And, and the encouragement today is going to be follow the leader. Jesus suffered to the point of crucifixion, death on a cross, uh, because it was God's plan. It was for God's glory. And as Christians, we can follow the leader. We can suffer for God knowing that his plans are good, his plans are true, and, and that in the end, suffering for God matters. And we've seen that throughout Peter. I was thinking back to um, a few years ago when my oldest two boys were in football at Stillicum High School, and I was one of the coaches there, and we went over to Ellensburg for a football camp. And so it was a lot of fun. We went over there for, I think it was four days, three nights, four days. We were at Ellensburg High School, and there were about eight or nine different teams that came over, and we were going to do practices together and scrimmages and everything. And, and although I could talk about that for hours and how much fun that was, I was thinking in particular about one of the team-building activities that we did. We went down to the river, and we got in these big boats, and, and we, we sailed I guess it's not really sailed, floated on these rivers over there in Ellensburg. And, and it's a lot of fun. And there are a couple of times where it gets a little rough. And, and I think in my mind, I had built it up to be in something bigger, but they were, they were kind of, you know, mild, but it was still a lot of fun. The boys had a great time. We were throwing footballs in between the boats and jumping into the water when safe and all that kind of stuff. But, but I want to rewind just a little bit in this story. When we were on the shore and they were going through all the safety precautions, they asked, how many of you guys have done this before? And there were about 55, 60 boys plus all the coaches. And I think there were like two kids that raised their hand. And, and knowing the kids, I wasn't really convinced that they had done this. Um, and so the, the, the raft leader said, follow me, right? Follow the leader. I know what to do. If I tell you to put your oars in on one side, I'm telling you to do it for a reason. Right. And, and if, if, if I need you to sit down and, and, and settle down for a moment because of around this corner, I know what's coming up. Follow my instructions. Follow the leader. What I do, you do. And that made a whole lot of sense. At least it made a whole lot of sense to me. I don't know about the 50 boys, whether they were listening or not, but I was like, I want to survive this. 
whitewater rafting, right? Ish, whitish. Uh, I want to survive it, so I want to follow the leader. I want to follow the instruction of the person that knows how to do that. And I think today we are going to see in Peter his encouragement to us to follow the leader. Jesus Christ has given us the perfect example, right? In how to live and how to die. And, and he's given us the truths that we need to have that firm foundation and that setting, uh, uh that, that is just plant where we can plant our feet and know that we are just, we are locked in with what God has for us. And so today, as we dive into first Peter chapter three, we're going to go all the way through chapter four, verse six. Um, we'll have the words up here on the, on the screen so you can follow along there or in your own Bible. What we want to watch today is what example has Jesus Christ given us and how can we apply that to our lives to become more like him? So let's open in prayer, uh, and then we'll dive right in. Father God, we do come before you today and we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for Peter and and for the wisdom that you have given us through his writing. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the inspiration uh, that you gave Peter as he wrote this book, this letter. And we thank you that it is applicable to us today. Help us to become more like the women and men that you desire for us to be, the disciples that you've called us to be. Help us to look a little bit more like Jesus each and every day. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So we'll be starting in chapter 3, verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went to and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now let's pause there really quick because um, when you look at this passage here, when you look at this verse, it could be a little bit confusing to you. Uh, For most of you, it probably is. It was even for me this week, and I've studied this verse before in the past. This passage is, is a tough one to interpret. Okay, there are a lot of different thoughts out there on there. Scholars uh, say that this might be one of the most difficult passages to interpret because they just don't know everything uh, about this specific passage. In other words, people try to read too much into it sometimes. So let's let's look really quick though. He starts out with a rather simple and beautiful concept when Peter says here in, in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So we're, we're looking at the gospel there. Jesus uh, died on the cross. He took the, the sins that had been committed by you and by me and anyone who had placed their faith in him as the perfect sacrifice to right our relationship with the holy God. He took all of those. So it says Christ suffered once for sins. So he went to the cross with a purpose to die for our sin. The righteous, Jesus Christ, perfect, who lived on this earth for 33 years, perfect. He is God, fully God, fully man. He was righteous. He did this for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
We've been talking a ton about suffering, and here we see suffering. I think probably most of us have seen a movie uh, about Jesus' life and death. Uh, they're out there. There's some really good quality ones. Um, but it was, it was definitely suffering in the physical body. But even on top of that, there was the suffering, suffering or the mental anguish of bringing all of that sin once and for all onto him. Because the shedding of blood, Jesus Christ's blood, was what we needed to write our relationship, our sinful relationship with our perfect and holy heavenly father. And, and so we, we see gospel here at the beginning of this passage. The biggest theme in the book here is suffering. We've titled the, the, the sermon series Saints Through Suffering, and he just continues on here in this passage talking about suffering. So Peter, by stating four at the beginning of this, uh, this part here, is tying it back to what he had said previously. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll remember the fact that we believers may be called to, or I would even say will be called to, suffer for righteousness. In other words, if we are going to live a life as a follower of Jesus Christ, there will be suffering. People will persecute us for our faith. If people aren't in opposition to the way that you're living, you're not living your faith out in a way that people see it. In other words, the way you've been called to live by God is contrary to the way that the world says to live. And so there's suffering involved with being a Christian. Our identity in Christ alienates us from the world. So here in verse 18, he wants us to follow the leader, to be crystal clear that Jesus Christ, who also suffered, is a leader worth following. However, Jesus' suffering was unique and and different than our suffering, and I've already talked about that. He died once to cleanse uh, the, those who would come to him and place their faith in him of their sins. So he came with a purpose because his righteousness is what we need and what we could never earn on our own. So understanding that is kind of baseline Christianity. We are born into sin. We are sinners. We can't fix the relationship on our own and we need Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. So that is different than our suffering, but we can still follow the leader. I could obey the instructions on where to put the oar and how to move the boat, but I won't necessarily ever be the leader that that gentleman was in the boat that we were in and in the raft that we were in. I I can follow his lead, but he was the better leader. We can follow Jesus' lead, and he was the perfect leader leader. He died once to cleanse all sins because he is righteous. We are not. He never sinned. He lived the perfect life that we could not. He did so so that you and I, when we believe in Jesus Christ's work, the death, burial, and resurrection can be brought to God. And that's what Peter says there. Beautiful, uh, continues on with the same theme, how God has chosen us and he brings us to him. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The sacrifice that Jesus made for our sin debt that we could never pay. This is a game changer, right? The gospel message is why you and I are here today. Or you're visiting, you're with family, and maybe you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ yet. But the reason Christians gather is the gospel. 
That's what we're going to be celebrating here in a few weeks at Easter. Good Friday, we're going to be looking at the, the passion of the cross and what Jesus truly accomplished there. The gospel, right? Jesus willing to trade his righteousness for our unrighteousness. He took the punishment you and I deserve. I could go on and on and on talking about this because the reward that he has given us, eternity in heaven with God the Father is something we could never earn on our own. And that was his purpose. That's why he came to this earth, to suffer and die and then be resurrected on that third day. So now, your suffering still has a purpose. And Peter's been clear about that. We've talked about that up until now. And he's going to take another opportunity here uh, to, to continue on through the rest of the book. But he wants to point out the differences. Jesus' suffering, the purpose there was to bring us to God. Right? Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Right? The Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders... They may have been able to kill Jesus' body or his flesh because he let them, but but the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And that's important to know and, and to understand and to stand by. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus only was raised in spirit. I believe, and I think the Bible clearly points to a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is important because this gives us the hope Right, The confident expectation that you and I, if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, if we are Christians, we're following Jesus and his way, that we can also have a bodily resurrection after we die. At the second coming, death was vanquished by Jesus. Okay? And and so... Peter wants to get that out of the way. Now we're getting to what can be a difficult part to interpret. It looks a little bit goofy. We're trying to figure out what exactly it means. In verse 19, it says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, so there are three major views of this verse, and, and today, Pastor Kevin and I, as we studied this week, we decided we were gonna, we were gonna really focus in on two of them. The two that probably have the most backing, the most followers, and, and we're gonna look at those and, and, and see what the best example, uh, or the best interpretation of this probably is. And, the first one here is Peter is using Noah here as an example. Okay? And we see that. Briefly, Noah was told by God to build an ark. Now, this is in a time where there was no rain. Rain had not fallen. And he was building this huge boat out in the middle of nowhere, not near water at all. Right? It took him 120 years to build the ark. And, and during that time, we read that Noah preached repentance to all who made fun of him and continued on in their wickedness. A lot of times we look at the the story of Noah, we see the ark, the animals, a lot of times we tailor it to kids, right? That, that, that Noah built this boat to save the animals from the flood, you know, and, and, and we don't look at really the depth and the intensity of this story. 
For 120 years, Noah, who was already being persecuted for his belief in God, built a boat in front of the people that he was preaching to, saying that they needed to repent and change their ways. And yet, none did. So Noah worked on this boat for 120 years, and that entire time, he was suffering because of his faith. And when God's time came, the boat was completed, uh, he had Noah save two of every animal. Now that's the part of the story that we all know, right? He, the two of every animal and, and eight humans. It was Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. That was it. The invitation was for all. Come aboard. And yet no one else got on board. Only the member, members of Noah's family remained true to God. And God flooded the earth. Total destruction. We read about that in the Old Testament. Some interpret this text to be referring to Jesus preaching in the spirit, right? Because we believe that Jesus was all the way back at creation. He would have been around at this time also. And he's preaching this, this repentance through Noah, and yet people chose not to believe. We, we turn over to Hebrews 1. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn over there. If you're just taking notes, maybe r- jot this down. You can look at it later. I'm going to read it to you. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. You can insert Noah there. At many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Right? Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of God speaking through the prophets. You could argue Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of Jesus Christ's redemption of people through the prophets, right? In other words, God was involved in this, right? So it says there in verse two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Again, pointing back to Jesus Christ's participation at the creation, Genesis one, right? And, and, and so the, the author of Hebrews is giving that credit of God and through his son, Jesus. The son, verse three, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Here in Hebrews chapter 1, we see this concept of Jesus Christ in the beginning, at creation, active through the Old Testament, coming as the perfect sacrifice needed, and then eternity, sitting down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Okay, so we see that idea that, that God spoke to these people. The gospel basically was given to them. God's plan, I should say, the good news. Uh, so even though Jesus Christ hadn't come yet, it was still the good news, was given to these people by Noah, and it was rejected. So that's option number one. The second option that has some traction, it, it's probably not the one I would lean towards, but it's just this idea that would take these verses uh, to believe that Jesus was in the tomb, 
When he was crucified on Friday, he was placed in a tomb, and then he rose on, on Sunday morning, that he actually went in spirit to the abyss, right? Now, we just studied Revelation, so this was pretty cool. As we were studying through this, even though Kevin and I would, would tend to uh, uh, believe in the first option as being the one that's most relevant, we, we were able to call back on our time studying in the book of Revelation, this idea of the abyss. The abyss currently holds demons and, and fallen angels or spirits. We've read about this. We've studied this. And, and so the idea that they had so grieved God's heart in their rebellion with Satan, they've been thrown into the abyss. And, and here, the, the idea that, that the proponents of this would say is that Jesus went to proclaim his victory He's not preaching to them, but he's proclaiming to them. We know that the, the, these fallen angels, these fallen spirits are going to be held here until the events of Revelation chapter 9. Um, and, and the purpose, again, of Jesus going into the abyss or descending wasn't to preach to them, to give them a chance to come back to God. That's already set. It's already sealed. But it was to proclaim his victory. Now, the one thing, as Kevin and I talked about this for a long time this week, the one thing we kept coming back to, both of these views and even some of the lesser views would say the important thing of this all is that Jesus is victorious, right? And I think we can all agree upon that today. The idea that that God spoke through Noah And those who rejected were not saved, but he saved mankind through Noah and his family's obedience. We see God accomplishing his purpose. And and Jesus accomplished his purpose on the cross. This has got to encourage us as we follow the leader, the victorious leader, to be faithful in our suffering. So you and I may be going through suffering now, even for our faith, and yet we've been given the example of Jesus Christ, who suffered to the point of death as the perfect example. Jesus accomplished a ton through his death, burial, and resurrection, and we've been called to follow the leader. So also, just as in the days of Noah, there were just a few that remained faithful. We talked about at the beginning of First Peter, in this dispersion under the Roman Empire, there were a few remaining faithful. And so for those who had placed their faith in this Messiah, in Jesus Christ, Peter's encouragement was to continue to follow the leader. Continue on in faithful service. Peter's readers were fewer than the masses, much like Noah and his family. And they had to endure suffering from those who had rejected Jesus Christ, who were not believers, who were not Christians. They were living living in that suffering. And I think that's where Peter was going with that. We're going to move on to verse 21, right? Out of the frying pan. So we're safe now. But we're not, because there's another fire here right ahead. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. We're going to pause there for a second, because anybody that's been at the Grace Works for any amount of time knows that there's only one thing that saves us. 
and that's a belief in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection, that the blood that he shed is now applied to our sinful lives so that when God the Father sees us, he sees his son. He sees the blood applied to our sin and our rebellion and our transgression, right? Period. There's nothing that we need to do. There's nothing that we can do to obtain salvation. So what is Peter talking about here when he says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you? Let's continue on reading and then we'll talk about it. It says, not for, or not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since Peter was already talking about water, Noah's flood, he correlates it to baptism, which also makes us, you and I, think of water. However, in doing this, there is some confusion here. But when we read the entirety of scripture, that's why it's so important to take every verse in light of all scripture, we never would believe with the entirety of scripture that the act of water baptism is what saves us. It's faith in Jesus Christ. The criminal on the cross next to Jesus was not baptized. Okay, he didn't get down from the cross, get baptized, get back up on the cross and die. And yet Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, we know that, right? Um, salvation did not come and does not come through water baptism. And, and we think that there is a clear argument in scripture that points towards that. Scripture doesn't contradict itself. So we got to search for a deeper meaning of verse 21. What was Peter talking about? And actually, when you, when you think about it, the water in Noah's day didn't save anyone. So why would Peter equate water baptism to that? Because it actually killed everyone, right? What saved the people in Noah's day? It was the ark, right? And Jesus sometimes is even equated to the ark. In other words, we go to him for salvation. And the answer to this, though, this whole idea, it's fairly simple. When Peter says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, he's not referring to water baptism. At least not the outward physical sign and the ceremony, which is important, that takes place, though. But it's the inward spiritual reality that baptism pictures and portrays, right? We encourage people after they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ to be baptized. Why? Because it shows the rest of the world, I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, right? And so the representation of the death, the burial, and the resurrection out of the, out of the grave, out of the water, it's a picture of what's gone on inside of us at that moment of salvation. So the Grace Works Church believes that faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation is what saves you and that we cannot add to that. Now, in discipleship, there are things we do that show 
our decision, that show our dedication to Jesus Christ, and that baptism is one of those things. And then this is really confirmed, I think, in the rest of verse 21. If you look at that with those lenses on, it says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Water baptism could be thought of as as cleansing from sin, but it's not. It could be thought of that way, but it's not. It's the appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that purifies the conscience. Does that make sense? Like It's that understanding of what Jesus did for you and for me that causes the change in us. Not whether we've put you into a tank and submerged you and brought you back out. That is a picture of that. It was your belief that saved you. You are baptized in the spirit the moment you believe. That's the baptism that takes place. That's the baptism that's needed. But that's internal. And so water baptism gives you an opportunity to share with those who are walking this path with you the path of discipleship, that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Water baptism should be one of your first steps in obedience. Why? Because Jesus gave us that example. He was baptized, and we have been called to follow the leader. But the regeneration that happens inside of you is not because of the water. When we appeal to God through the the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we, you and I, die to our sins and we're born again into him, right? Into him, through him, for life. That's what's pictured in our water baptism, right? When we're dunked under the water and raised back up. And all of this takes place, why? Because of the glorious work of Jesus Christ, Not based on anything you and I have done or said. And it says of Jesus Christ that he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. I should say the right hand with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is is one of my favorite pictures in all of scripture. The completion of Jesus and his purposes. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father. The glory of God in in Christ, in heaven, Jesus, his work is completed until he comes to get his church. Again, Christ the Lord is victorious and and his victory, it's all-encompassing and it's complete. It doesn't need anything from us. Let's continue on so we can get you home uh, in time for, for your Sunday afternoon, or I could keep talking all day. We're into chapter 4, verse 1. We just got a couple of more verses here. Since therefore, okay, so we need to remember what he said, and then now moving forward. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for what whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He gets to the practical now. He says since, okay? Since all of this stuff has happened. Since Christ suffered and died on the cross for us. And accomplished so much through his suffering. You and I, we 
are called to arm ourselves in the same way of thinking. Peter here telling us to follow the leader. In other words, be ready for suffering. Are you ready today for suffering? Be ready to suffer well for righteousness sake. To arm oneself, uh, it, it pictures the battle that takes place. The battle that you and I are in. Formerly as part of the world system, we were at peace with the world. If you're living according to the world, there is no battle. The world says this is okay and that's okay. And you do this and you do that. But when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you now have a different understanding of right and wrong. Right? Your morality is different. What you've been called to do is different. What's acceptable is no longer acceptable. When we were living for the world, before you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there was no battle there, but the battle was between you and God. There was tension there. There was a broken relationship. We went with the flow, so we weren't embattled with the world, but we didn't have a relationship with God. But now that we've been baptized by the Spirit, we are dead to sin. And Peter suggests that we will actually be less prone to sin while suffering. Okay? So look at those verses again. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now the word, the word translated ceased is more like the word rest. So hear me on this. Don't get me wrong. When I'm working outside and I cease to work for the day and I go inside and plop myself down on the couch, I have ceased working for the day. I am taking rest, right? Okay, I'm done. I've ceased. It doesn't mean that I won't work again. It just means that I have not. And what I think is beautiful here, um, and that I really love out of this passage, is if you are suffering for Christ, if you're suffering for Christ, that means you're living for Christ to the point of, of persecution and you don't back down. Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, has a rest from sin. In other words, if you're following Christ to the point of suffering, persecution, you won't sin because you're so focused on Jesus Christ. Think about the areas that you fall into sin. On a regular basis. If you are focusing on Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit's work in your life, what you've been called to do, what you've been called to say, because of the wonderful salvation that we receive from Jesus Christ, you won't have time to fall into the sin that so easily entangles us when we're just coasting along. Thank you. Yes, it is good. If you're suffering, if you're persecuted and your eyes are on Jesus Christ, you will cease to sin, albeit even for a day or a moment, right? But that's what Peter is saying here. So don't misunderstand him. We have been called to live for Jesus Christ. And if there's persecution and we stay faithful, we're less likely to sin because our eyes will be on Jesus Christ. If that's the truth, if that's the reality, bring the persecution on. That should be our prayer. Anything to help me focus in on God, his plan for my life. 
Help me to be the kind of Christian that can cease from sin even when I'm not suffering. But if it takes suffering to help me to sin less, then that should be my prayer. It's so important to understand what he means by cease there because Kevin and I this week, we were talking and we know because we are sinful people. You guys who are our friends that we engage with, we know that you struggle with sin. In other words, it's tough. And yet, if we can find rest from sin through persecution, help us to be a people that can find rest from sin through a fellowship with Jesus Christ. There's still a war raging. It is. It's tough. The world wants us to live a certain way. It wants to bring us back down to where we started. Peter will say, though, suffer, suffer, suffer for Christ and sin less. The calling, it was part of our last week's conversation and really over the last few, um, it, 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 it's what Peter has said of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that we have been called as believers, right? We've been called into this family, and that is to bless others. That is for other people. The baptism into the Holy Spirit changes our calling on our life from self-centered, self-focused to God-focused, and it's to bless But secondly, and that's where Peter goes next in verse 2, it's so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So we learned last week that we've been called to bless others. We have also been called, right, to live for God, live out the will of God, follow the leader. We're not supposed to simply just go along with the flow, right? If we go along with the flow of the world, we can avoid suffering. But if our eyes aren't on the Savior, we're more apt to sin. We need to follow the leader. Live for God. After all, Christ is victorious, and and we need to live victorious lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Once we place our faith in him, we need to live for him and through him. Now next, Peter goes a little more deeply into this concept of the human passions uh, that we once lived for. The longest section here at the close. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Peter goes into a list here, right? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It sounds like Peter's been on college campuses lately, right? I mean, this is crazy. But he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. They talk bad about you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So verse three here says that before you were saved, before you were walking with God, you did these things or you lived in this way or what the world said was okay was what you could participate in. 
But now, Peter goes on to say, that time has passed. You are new. You have been called to follow the leader. Now, this list of sins, it's, it's ugly, right? I mean, these sins are all about pleasure. No matter what the cost is, it doesn't matter who the other person is or what it might do to uh, anyone else but yourself, right? Perversions of sex, perversions of alcohol use, perversions of worship, right? Things that when done according to God's will, sex, alcohol, worship, whatever it might be, can and are glorifying to God and pleasurable for the believer. But the world says you don't have to follow God's plan. Do whatever you want to. And so what was happening in this time is the Christians were living differently, the dispersed Christians, than the Romans, the captors, and those who were living there, and they were being made fun of, maligned for not living the same way. The persecution was real. It was starting. They were being persecuted for being different. It's so easy for a counterfeit of the real thing to seem okay, right? We talk about that with money. That somebody that's good at, at figuring out what a counterfeit bill is, is somebody that spends a lot of time with the real bill to the point where they know what it should look like and feel like. Then when they get a counterfeit bill, they know it's not the real thing. Jesus Christ has given us the path of real thing. And we need to stay on that path. Jesus Christ has given us the way to live, to honor and glorify God the Father. We need to not take what the world is trying to sell us and bring that into our lives. We need to know the difference. We need to know what's in the scriptures. For centuries... Christians have been tempted to do these things, even try to fit them into the faith, right? Into Christianity, like they belong. But God says, there is no longer a place for these things in the life of any believer. Verse four goes on to note how unbelievers are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. So surprised that they often malign or make fun of, we're mocked, we're labeled for believing in God's definition of sex within a biblical marriage or, or that it's okay uh, to, to save yourself until you get married, right? People are made fun of that for that reason. The same goes with over drinking or, or partying, elevating those things to the status of an idol, almost worship. Like if you can't talk about the party that you just attended, if you don't have that, you know, Instagram picture with a drink in your hand, you, you're, you're not living up to what the world says you should be doing. Peter wants to comfort those who have been ridiculed, who have endured suffering simply because they abstain from sin. He says in verse 5 that they will give account to God when he judges the living and the dead. They will stand before the throne. They will answer for what they have done. And Peter wants that to be an encouragement to you and I to stand for the truth. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh... The way people are, they might live in the spirit the way 
God does. Peter isn't referring to individuals who had the gospel preached to them while they were alive in the flesh and who responded favorably by becoming Christians, but they were judged according to the flesh. They were treated harshly and condemned to martyrdom by their contemporaries. At the time Peter was writing, they were dead, deceased, departed from this earth. But Peter says, uh, they live according to God in the Spirit. They were alive and well in the Spirit. Now this would encourage them if, if they were tempted, the original readers, to think that believe in Jesus and yet they still died, maybe I don't want to follow that path, right? These people that had believed in Jesus Christ and yet still suffered and died, maybe they were wrong. What good was their salvation? Well, Peter wants them to know that they are alive and well in the Spirit. God's salvation is not from the the first physical death. It's from the second eternal death. You and I, unless God returns, unless he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to return, you and I will taste physical death. And yet we will spend eternity with God if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We don't have to fear death because Jesus Christ conquered it. And you and I have the hope of the resurrection that Peter was talking about. Peter's encouragement today was to follow the leader. Let's be the kind of people that do that. Let's pray.